here's how it happened. There was a young boy, and I think he was from Nigeria. And at the time, he, you know, all the other kids were African-American, were black children, and they were referring to me as, you know, Mr. Sears, or brother, you know. And this boy, every time he came, he would say, Baba, but he didn't speak a lot of English. But he would follow me around, and he would say, Baba, Baba, Baba. And on the first day he was doing it, you know, the kids, and, you know, in Compton, the kids were like, what's he talking about? They were making fun of him, actually. So his mother came, and at the time, I didn't even know what Baba meant, to be honest with you. And when his mother came, I said, you know, all day your son has been following me around saying Baba. And I was like, what is, what's he saying this? What does it mean? Because he couldn't articulate it. And I, she, there was a sadness that came over, and she said, um, in our culture, Baba means father. And it is a term of respect. And she said his father was killed um, not long ago, before we came here. And he is calling you his father. So at that point, hold on, I didn't mean to get emotional. Mm. But at that point, all the other children, when they found out what it was, they started calling me Baba. So with my work in my community, I gained some level of respect and they gave me that title. So it's not something that was just... Like, yeah. I didn't, I never said, oh, call me Baba. No, the name <laughs> yeah, found but, you. Yeah, Salam and hello, everyone. My name is Lily Bagala Piper, and welcome to the show. As you know, stories are the heart and soul of Salam and Hello. Every episode is a story in and of itself. It's got a beginning, it's got a middle, it's got an end. Hopefully it's got some tension rising. Hopefully it's got a beautiful conclusion. And we value stories here because they are so much a part of our culture, our identity. They tell us who we are. They remind us of who we are. They often signal for us where we want to go. Over the years, we've had the great pleasure of having storytellers on the show, those who consider themselves professional storytellers, journalists like Abdi Latif Tahir, as well as those who are telling stories through the work that they're doing, like Eunice at the Rajesha Project. Well, today on the show, I am delighted that we, are, we have a guest who is a storyteller from the heart, somebody who has taken storytelling not only as an art, but as a discipline, as a pathway to connect culture, to connect community, to connect individuals. And he's here to share his art and his stories with us. Jeliba Baba the Storyteller has over 30 years of experience across the globe. He lives in Long Beach, California, but I think you could hardly call him, you know, a resident of one place. <laughs> he has made his home in school communities, in cultural communities, across borders, across the continent, across the world. And he's used storytelling as a way to connect not only himself to others, but to help communities understand and reflect their histories, their past, and their futures. As a part of his work, he has been recognized by Long Beach, California as the municipality's Artist of the Year. I think what a, a beautiful way to acknowledge somebody who has used storytelling as a means of educating and uplifting communities. In addition, he's also been honored with commendations from the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate in the United States. And when he's not touring internationally, he can be found serving communities in local schools, which we love here at Salam and Hello. You know, we are committed to schools and to teachers and to communities. So that is just the heart and soul of what we try and do here. And he's also found in libraries and festivals and events. 
And in the last couple of years, he's also authored the book Road of Ash and Dust, which tells his own story of being a Black American who has found his path throughout storytelling across the world, and in particular, here on the continent. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we're not just telling stories of Africa, but we're telling stories of all of her children. And so it is a great joy to have Baba the Storyteller here with us today, one of Africa's own children, to bring us his gift and his talent and his storytelling to the show. So Karibu Sana, we're so happy to have you with us. Thank you for that. You just warmed my heart so much. (laughs) Thank you for that. Well, I I think this introduction only touches on some of what you do because you've also brought your Cora today with us. And and I just can't wait to dive in and to learn and to get to know you better. Um, dear friends of the show and of mine, Sajdan Amin, called me up, I think like Tuesday, and said, we, we, we know you're busy, we don't care. You have to talk <laughs> to our friend, our new friend, Baba the Storyteller. Right. We think that the listeners would really benefit from him, and I'm just so honored that you would make time to be with us today. So it's thank reciprocal. You. There's reciprocity here. It's thank reciprocal. Thank you so much. So please introduce yourself to the listeners. You have a, a long digital footprint, and we're going to share mm-hmm. that today with our listeners, but... How do you like to be introduced? As a, um, as a father. I'm a mm. father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a husband. And I'm a man steeped in his culture. Other than that, I mean, I could go through accolades and things, but that, that's the core yeah. of who I am. And if someone wants to know me, that's how we get to know one another. So that, that's really who I am. I'm not, okay. I don't like, like delving into too many other things because that's the core of me. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, I didn't even know those parts of you. What I knew was kind of the storytelling and the art and the community mm-hmm. work. So we're going to have to get into the family piece because, of course, your name is Baba, which we right. all know here in Kenya. That's how we greet right. our fathers. And in my home country of Ethiopia, it's Abba. Same mm-hmm. letters, just different arrangements. So all yeah. still connected. So maybe we can start with why Baba the Storyteller was the name that you adopted for yourself as you started this work of storytelling. You know, I, it wasn't a name I adopted. It, it's more of a title than a name. And just to give you the cliff, no- the cliff notes, a summary of sure. how I acquired that. Um, I, my family, we were all living in a city in Los Angeles called Compton. And this was many years ago. This was around the time of Rodney King. And, mm. um, and we were plagued with uh, drugs and violence. And me and a group of men decided that, like, you know, we can't just stay in our house when our community is falling apart. So we decided that we were going to get together and we were going to do this thing called rites of passage. And it was based on indigenous practices of rites of passage. So what we were doing is we were taking the indigenous rituals and practices of a rite of passage, and we were taking it into an urban setting, and we were reconstituting what we thought was our spiritual nature, our spiritual guide. Mm. And in doing that, we would take these young boys um, whose fathers might have either been in prison or not alive, and we would take me and these men would take these young boys, and we would take them through rituals and ceremonies and fun things, camping trips and teaching them skills, you know, basic life skills. So here's how it happened. There was a young boy, and I think he was from Nigeria. And at the time, he, you know, all the other kids were African-American. They were black children. And they were referring to me as, you know, Mr. Sears or brothers, you know. Mm -hmm. And this boy, every time he came, he would say, Baba, but he didn't speak a lot of English. But he would follow me around and he would say, Baba, Baba, Baba. And on the first day he was doing it, you know, the kids in, you know, in Compton, the kids were like, what's he talking about? They were making yeah, fun of him, actually. Yeah. So 
his mother came, and at the time, I didn't even know what Baba meant, to be honest with you. And when his mother came, I said, you know, all day your son has been following me around saying Baba. And I was like, what is, what's he saying this? What does it mean? Because he couldn't articulate it. And I, she, there was a sadness that came over, and she said, um, in our culture, Baba means father, and it is a term of respect. And she said his father was killed um, not long ago before we came here, and he is calling you his father. So at that point, hold on, I didn't mean to get emotional. Mm. Over here. But at that point, all the other children, when they found out what it was, they started calling me Baba. So with my work in my community, I gained some level of respect, and they gave me that title. So it's not something Beautiful. that was just like, yeah. I didn't. I never said, oh, call me Baba. No, the name <laughs> found but, you. Yeah, the name yeah. found me. And it, I haven't been asked that. I haven't detailed that in a long time, so, yeah. yeah that's, what an honor. What a joy. I mean, I just think there's no better way. I think so many of us are used to, particularly those of us in creative space, yes. right? It's all about what's your DJ name, what's your rapper name, right. little this, little that. So how beautiful that your name came so organically from the relationships that you were building. The, uh, the children gave it yeah, to me. Yeah, how beautiful. And to be so rooted in what now has become... I mean, is it fair to say your life's work over 30 years yeah, of connecting communities? So beyond your role as father and grandfather and community, you know, kind of organizer, how did the storytelling piece get added to that title? I, I actually never thought about storytelling. My passion was history. It was always history. Even when I was growing up, my passion was always history. And I think the reason my passion was history is because you know, I grew up around my great-grandfather. He lived to be 110. And wow. the other men in my family always stressed the importance of history as a path to self-knowledge. So I grew up with this. But the educational system I was in didn't offer that. So I had this duality of, of engagement where I would go home and my uncles were you know, Pan-Africanists and Black nationalists and, you know, Garveyites and, uh, you know, all these, they were all these different, and Christians, and they were, but when I, these were the men who nurtured me. So coming up in that, I think that led to my passion for history. So um, when I left the United States, I actually left the United States. I didn't, I left because of the conditions. When I was young, I couldn't quite deal with the conditions of racism, of sexism, of the isms. I couldn't mm -hmm. deal with them. And I was witness to too many things that a young person should not be witness to. Mm -hmm. And I have too many family stories of, I would say, depravity from those who inflicted pain. So in doing that, when I went to Africa, I went to reestablish roots, reconnect with roots. There's, you know, I grew up in that era of Alex Haley, who wrote the book Roots. So I was like, I'm going back to Africa. Yeah. And I knew nothing. I'm going to be honest so with you. So give us some dates. So is this as a high school student? Is this mm -mm, it was after high school. After it, high school. But I was very young. Okay. So um, at that time, early 20s maybe. Okay. Um, Just independently, did you have a connection in the continent? I, I'm going to tell you. I'm about to okay. be so vulnerable. And you can see how <laughs> ignorant I was as a young man. I went to the continent with this vision. I went to Senegal. That was the first country I went to with this vision and this passion and my heart. And this is the motherland. Mm -hmm. And I went with no money. Okay. And you thought you would just like arrive to open arms and somebody's grandma would take you in. And Yep. Don't judge me. 
not, don't judge I'm just me. Appreciating your, your, your genuine heart. My, na- my naivete is what yeah. you're appreciating. So anyway, I I got to Senegal, and there was a, a host family. A friend of mine was from Senegal. He sent me to be with his family, his host family, and they were a family of griots. And I knew very little about griots at the time, but to earn money, what they would do is they would do naming ceremonies, all the traditional things, right? So I got into it, and I was like, I want to learn. And they they had told me, they said, you know, this is for our people, this is for our family, and we pass these on to our sons and our daughters. So it it wasn't, I wasn't welcome with open arms and and taught. But one night, I was having a conversation with Buba. Buba was the father of the compound. And Buba asked me, why Why did I want to learn? Why did I come here? Because he couldn't quite wrap his mind around, you know, this uh, someone coming from the land where the streets are paved with gold. Right, because this and is the 80s. Th- ish yeah, or so, so everyone, thinks the, everyone thought yeah. the United States, is it's a land paved with gold and you earn money and you become rich and everyone there is rich. So mm-hmm. he couldn't wrap his mind around why someone would leave that. And, okay, we all know that's a fallacy, we first all of all. But I explained to him, I explained to Buba that I was interested in reconnecting with my ancestors. And I told him that I had come to the continent for that reconnection because my tie to my ancestry was severed through enslavement. I'm a descendant of those who were enslaved in the United States. So once I began telling him my story and explaining what I was doing, Everything opened up at that point. And he had his sons begin teaching me the Quora. He had, he was helping me with the language, the songs. I mean, there was nothing that he held back. And at that, at that point, also, it was it was like I was learning, I was a neophyte, but I was passionate. Mm-hmm. So I was willing to do anything. And that's why the book, like when you when you mentioned the title of the book, uh, Road of Ash and Dust. The subtitle of the book is An An Awakening of a Soul in Africa. That's Mm -hmm. a subtitle. So um, Buba was the one who told me I could not live in Africa. (laughs) He he was the one who told me I had to leave. And um, the reason why he told me I had to leave was because he said, your work is not here. Mm -hmm. He said, your learning is here, but your work is not here. He said, you will find your people. Yeah, he said, you will find your people all over the world. And at the time, I was young. I didn't know what he was talking about. And so I left and went back to the United States. But there's an interesting thing. He gave me a a cowskin bag when I left. And in this cowskin bag were all of these things that he, I knew he valued, but he gave them away to me. And it was full of all of these things. And when I took this bag, I... You know, I was like, Booba, you really, this is for me? But I didn't think at the time, he gave me all these things, but they sh- I thought they were part of his son's legacy. He had several sons. But he said, no. He said, their interests are not like yours. And he gave me a lot when I left. Hmm. 
I hope I answered your question because you you got me rolling and I got I'm into my thoughts now. No, so I, think, I hope I know, answered your question. No, absolutely, because I think part of what I want to do in this conversation is continue to understand how we are all connected. Mm-hmm. I've been having a lot of conversations actually with people lately about the Black American experience, the Kenyan American experience. In fact, I interviewed somebody just yesterday who's authored a book recently about the immigration of a Kenyan woman into the U.S. and what she learns about the differences. <laughs> and the way she talks yeah. about it is being a different brand of blackness and how she realized as a Kenyan in the U.S., she had a different brand of blackness mm-hmm. and how that ha- was something she had to unpack and understand and then unpack her own ignorance mm. about the black American experience. Yes. And your learning started so young, your curiosity started so young, which is I think is a huge benefit. Yes. Not all of us have that exposure so the storytelling, it sounds like, came out of this deep experience you had in Senegal coming when you were in your early 20s. When did you realize that that could then be a tool that you could use or when Babu's words became true that your work was not going to be here, that that experience would now then be a tool that you could use for work elsewhere? Almost immediately, but I didn't apply it to what I'm doing now. Almost immediately because when I was growing up in the United States, and I was in the educational system, the public school system, coming up as a young black male is problematic. And I will say I was punished for being who I was for most of my educational life, coming up through elementary, junior high school. And I, I had issues constantly. And I remember the bell went off for this because it... I was constantly being punished for not being able to speak English correctly, write English correctly. And no matter what I did, no matter how hard I worked, it seemed like I was never able to meet the criteria of my teachers, mm. what they wanted from me. What, and I'll say this, the majority of them were white, right? No, almost all of them, except for one woman, were white. And that had that played a big role in it. But when I went to the continent and I was learning Bamana and I was learning Mandinka and I was learning these languages... The natural flow of the way I was speaking English, like the the things that they thought were distortions, translated directly Hmm. into a few different African languages. And like, here's an example. And you're asking me, when did I discover this? As a young boy, we use the verb be for everything. Right. We would say things like, you know, you know, I'd be going, I'd be all right, you know, I'd be hot. And mm-hmm. this was like young. I would say things like, mm-hmm. and, and I, I would get punished <laughs> constantly. Mm-hmm. Then I get to uh, Senegal or Mali and I'm dealing with Mandinka or Bamana and they say something like, like griot is jelly, right? So they say, imbe jelly, right? Imbe jelly. I be a jelly. I yeah. be a griot. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So all so the applications of it, especially when Buba told me I need to go back, it became if that helped me understand who I am, then that can help a lot of others, young brothers and sisters in the United States, know that they are not wrong. They're speaking from their ancestral roots, and our ancestral roots are so strong that they survive in us to this day, and they come out in the way that we practice our speech. Mm that those patterns are real. So that was a part of it. And I couldn't go back and say, like if people said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm a griot, I'm a jelly. Nobody would know what that was. So I started adopting the term storyteller because I had to translate everything I was doing to English, to the West. Yeah. 
Yeah, because so that, the work was yeah. eventually going to start there, but it's taken you across the world. Yeah. What, tell me about what audiences' reactions were as you started to communicate what you were learning and started to tell stories. Um, you know, we'll definitely put in the show notes where people can mm. find some of your stories. They they span topics mm-hmm. and themes of self-discovery, of historical moments. You know, they, they're broad-reaching. It's truly a library. You've, you've created an Thank audio you. library for us to dig into. And so what were those initial reactions that people had when you started <laughs> to say, listen, I be walking, I be dancing is actually an expression okay. of your roots and right. embrace that, you know? We're, we're going back. We're going back almost... 38 years. Yeah, because I will say, this, I also okay. grew up in the U.S. Ethiopian, I grew up in the U.S. Okay, so and you I understand can, some I of understand this. and I can reflect back, and I didn't necessarily have that pattern, but I can definitely reflect back to my peers absolutely being marginalized yeah. for those kind of speech patterns. And yeah. wow, what a, what a release it would have been to have felt, like so have somebody like you. To be seen, to, to be, be seen. heard, to be understood. And to be affirmed. Yeah. Initially, know? when I first went back, I was... It was partially my fault. I was a zealot. Okay. <laughs> my way. Oh, I got the key. I got, I know. Come listen to this. Like, and I wasn't, because I was so young, I, my my heart wasn't open to listening as much as it is as I got a little older. It, they say life will teach you through experience a mm-hmm. lot, right? Um, so the reception initially was, you know, I was insane. <laughs> <laughs> the initial reception was, you know, yeah, he went to Africa and lost his mind. And even family, they were like, you want to do what with your life? You know, yeah, I'm, I want to be a griot. I'm going to be a griot. And, you know, I now that I look back, I mean, if my children came to me. Right. right, right. That's not very marketable, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I, it would be the same. But I had a plan. So the reception at that time was lukewarm. The only places that were really open to receiving me were our community schools. Mm-hmm. They were, I came back and they were like, whatever you want, tell us how you want to set it up. And I, I'm not sure if everyone understands what I mean when I say community schools. These were, these were schools not in opposition of the public schools, but they were foundation to um, a more nurturing development of our black children. So we had our community schools. And I spent a lot of time in our community schools. And when our children started transitioning out to community schools, many of the parents were like, oh, no, you're coming to my child's public school. So it was incremental, the yeah. rise. And I think in a lot of ways, I was forced on a lot of uh, institutions. <laughs> what were the kids' reactions? Oh, my gosh. The children. That's what keeps me going today. Whole acceptance uncompromising love. Hmm. Not a... I don't think... I'm trying to think in all the years I've been doing this, I don't have one child of any ethnicity, of any background, who has ever rejected what I do. And in fact, I've had just the opposite. Um, I've had a lot of love poured my way from children. So they've been the foundation of my support to motivate me to continue. Which tells us something about what we teach our kids, either intentionally or unintentionally. They, at some point, they get messages mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. what you are offering, the stories, the information, the identity, revelation, all of those things, if it's not received with love at age 12, 13, or whatever right. point that shifts, 
it's something that's taught. It's not something that's going to say innate to even who they are because there's something that, you're right, in, in small kids they receive. I've heard people make similar comparisons around children dancing. Every kid dances up until like a certain age when they're told. They we're untaught. Good. We're yeah. untaught to dance. Yeah, exactly. All of us dance. Yeah. Exactly, you know. So, you know, I, th- this idea of, you know, spending a life telling stories mm-hmm. at some point was there a story that you're like wherever I go this is a story that is going to be central because I can imagine you you adopt new stories you yeah. you get rid of old ones you try something different but is there a story that has stayed with you no matter where you've gone in the world because you have been everywhere Brazil Colombia Uruguay yeah. Senegal I mean I was looking at your list I was like I can't even write all these down <laughs> <laughs> but you have been all over the world so right. is there a story that has kind of been central to your work and practice you know, there is something that comes to mind, but it's not a story I share. Hmm. And until you ask me this, I never thought about sharing this story. But, um, hmm, that's I'm going to go you share with no. Well, it, not the whole story, but I'll, okay. I'll explain okay. something some, about because okay. this is interesting to me hmm. that this comes out the way it did with you. Um, when I was growing up. And I think it's it's motivation that pushes me. When I was growing up, my grandmother, um, she was mainly the person who raised me, my grandmother. And my grandmother was born in like 1910. So her father, my great-grandfather, is the one who lived to be 110. And my grandmother would tell me these stories whenever we were alone. And she would tell me these stories because she wanted to protect me. This is what she was saying. She wanted to protect me as a young black male. And one of the stories she told me was of her uncle, and they worked in the farm fields. And I won't go into detail about the story, but her uncle was coming back from the fields, working in the fields, and his shadow passed by the window of this white woman who had a home near the fields. And this posse, I don't know what you call them, crew of white men came, and they took my uncle, my great-uncle, he'd be my great-uncle, They took him away from his home, and they made my grandmother, all of her sisters, her brothers, her father, her mother, and all the family that was present, they made them come to the tree where they hung him, and they made them watch. And this is the insidiousness of enslavement, of colonialism, of all of these things that we've suffered under that many people want to deny ever existed. So my grandmother shared this with me. And this was as a child. So when most children were hearing stories like from Mother Goose and things like this, I wasn't growing up with that. I was growing up with these stories. And I'm telling you this one because for some reason it came to surface. And I believe stories come to surface for a purpose. They have their own purpose. And it's part of ritual. So growing up hearing this and being aware of this, it was foundational to me to know that others suffered for me to be here. So when I'm traveling and I'm thinking and I'm sharing stories and I'm doing these things, it's not so much that it's about the stories as, it, as it's about the purpose of the stories. It's about how if I have been gifted with the ability to have effects on other human beings, then I'm going to use that talent and that skill so that someday maybe there will be change in this world. And I think every one of us has the potential to create change. And this is my little corner or my little grain of sand on the beach Mm -hmm. where 
I'm helping to do what we do. But that story right there sits with me all the time. And I, that's not something I share with the children, you know, when I'm telling. I am age appropriate. I'm developmentally appropriate. But it's coming, like I say, when I look into someone's eyes, they tell me what story they want to hear. And that's the griot tradition. So when you ask me that, I know you may have been thinking of something different, but it's almost as if your eyes tell me what story needs to be told in that moment. That's the one of the most foundational stories for me that I carry with me. Yeah, I need to just sit with that because that's, um, thank you, first of all. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry because that's an, uh, that is too often the stories that mothers have to tell sons. Mm -hmm. um, it makes me think about the stories I've had to tell my own sons. And um, they are... They sit with the stories of love. They sit with the stories of comfort. The stories mm -hmm. of wisdom also sit these stories of protection and and how much love your grandmother had for you to also want to protect you with this story. Yeah, um, just makes me think about the role stories play in our life. Um, yeah, I just need to sit with that. That's um, something that um, I just remember your your ancestors and yes. what the price they paid for your stories. You know. You are yeah. empathic, yeah, and that resonates with me. Mm. So when pe when I tell these types of stories and I come across souls like yours, it's healing for me. Mm. So I don't, I don't ever want to put that story out and have people feel a certain way mm. because I'm beyond the pain of it, mm. and I'm on to the purpose of it. Mm. Amen. It's hard to even move on to that because I think there's, I don't know that we'll ever stop grieving as a people, I no. think. Um, I think this is something that comes up a lot is, you know, how long can you be angry? How long can you carry it? But how can we not also continue to hold space? But I right. think what you said is so powerful to move on to what is the purpose of that pain and can we give the pain purpose at yes. least yes. in our work? And it's definitely something that we are trying to do with the work that we're doing here is to tell stories that have both the joy of our people and also the justice that we seek for them. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you for what you're doing and carrying that legacy forward and, and talking to kids. Thank you. I mean, I think they are the hope that we have. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking of your grandmother. I think it makes me think of my own grandmother. Um, it's, it's interesting how often people mention grandmothers on this show. We had a mm -hmm. poet on a few months ago, and she talked about her grandmother who raised her, who she also smoked pot with at, after school. <laughs> <laughs> but she talked about how much her grandmother taught her. This was an Ethiopian uh, poet and uh, different country, different time, yeah. but just the imprint of the generations of before yeah. us. Um, so thank you. And um yeah, my next question was to me, what lessons do you carry with you? But that really <laughs> <laughs> answers that uh, so so beautifully. You know, what um what do you feel like are something that through all of these stories and the experiences that you've had, what have you come to love about yourself and your people and your culture? Because you're sitting between a lot of worlds and I haven't yet had the opportunity to read your book, and perhaps some of this is illuminated in those pages. But what have you come to learn to love, to celebrate, and to appreciate about all the stories and cultures and pieces that make you who you are? That's an easy question for me to answer because it's something I have given a lot of meditation and thought to. And it's not just me. But if I think about our history, because remember, I'm a history, a history person. Buff, yeah. So if I think about our history and I think about what has happened to us as a people, then what grabs me the most 
is our compassion for love. Hmm. Our ability to love in a way that I think not many understand because people question, like, how can you not be angry all the time? How can you not want to seek revenge? How could you not, like, I'm human. Yeah. I go through all of those ranges of emotions, yeah. right? But at the end of that road is this capacity to love myself so much that I spread my love to others. Because I can't, you know, one of my favorite authors was James Baldwin, right? And Baldwin used to say, um, he said, well, <laughs> now that I'm remembering what he was talking about, he inward. Yeah. He said, you know, you say it. <laughs> it's all right. I'll just, course, you know, yeah. hey, we're, he said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I'm not a nigga. He said, I've never been a nigga. My people have never been niggas. And he pointed to the white commentator who was interviewing him. And he said, your people created niggas. And then he told them, being a nigger is a reflection of your psyche, not mine. Mm. And growing up hearing these type of people say things like that, mm. let me know, like, our, our capacity to love is limitless. And I think that's confusing for a lot of people in the world sometimes because there's no one in the world who has gone through what we have gone through as a people across this Indeed. continent. Indeed. No one. So I think that I'm just going to sit with that capacity to love. That's so beautiful. And, you know, we see it in such big and small ways, the capacity to create art, to create yes. justice, to create democracy. But then, you know, I, I think about my eldest daughter who has been raised on the continent and just went to the U.S. for uni, for university. And yeah. um, one of the things she loves most about Black American culture that she's getting to know better is the fact that she'll go into the cafeteria. She goes to the University of North Carolina, <laughs> right. you know, where most of the cafeteria stuff, if not all, are black Americans. And they just like, hey, baby, hey, sugar. Mm -hmm. And they just love on those black Come students here. like they're Come their own here. children. They're so yeah. proud of them. She That was one of the first things that she's like, I just can't get over it. I cannot get over it. It's like you said, the capacity to love yes. a child. If you are a black child, you are theirs. And that kind of overwhelming, enveloping yes. and embracing is just such a remarkable part of the culture that... Uh, it's yeah. grown out of a necessity. It's Absolutely. grown out of a need. Yeah. And I think that embracing... I mean, you, you're going to... We all know, you know, we're going to run into our fools everywhere, For sure. right? <laughs> but when you run into the kindness and the like-mindedness and the sort of like kindred spirits, you know who they are in that moment. So what that just tells me is that your daughter presents in a way where they know she will be accepting of them. Mm. I already mean, not knowing your daughter, but just the way you describe it, I already know mm. what she, why she's experiencing what she's experiencing because she was brought in a home, up in a home of love. And I can make these assumptions because I'm sitting here. No, I'm, well, it, nobody we said it was easy, right? Nobody, said, nobody ever I said think it was easy. There's a song called that, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> nobody said. Anyway, I won't say, but yes, um, but you're right. There is that, um, and and I think in continuing on what you were saying earlier in terms of what we can do to move past the pain that mm -hmm. that love is easier to carry than than the pain. I think Dr. Yes. King had a quote like that right up. For me, I'm going to move forward with love because hate right. is too heavy a burden to carry. That's that's and, King. Um, and that is what your your work is also doing. It is taking all the pain that 
brought you here and building on that. And I'm touched by what you said earlier in our conversation about the men you were surrounded by with yes. as well who nurtured you. I think the word you used was nurtured. And I'm thinking about the fact that June is Father's Day. And mm. as we move into that month of, of recognizing and celebrating fathers, you know, what's a message you might want your stories to convey about fatherhood in this modern era? Is there something that you think in this 2023 is a message that we just need to hear <laughs> about, about fatherhood in particular? Oh, my goodness. It- Someone gave you the cheat code on me. Um, I have. Please don't make me cry again. No, no. I, I'm, before, before you start, <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to be real with you. When it when it comes to the issues of fathers, I don't think. No, I'm going to include mothers also and fathers. I'm going to say this. I don't think we have the reverence that we should for these positions. I don't think we do. And I believe that, and I look, I'm going to speak freely, okay? Please do. There is only um, a union of the seed and the womb that creates life. We don't have it mm. like one without the other. We need each other. And I think I would like to see a parent's day and probably not separated by father and mother. I would like to see young people celebrate both of them simultaneously. And I think I think some of this has evolved from understanding my roots and understanding my Afrocentric way of viewing the world, that the way that I did wasn't wrong, right? Um, even things like birthdays, right? Mm. Um, one of the things I started doing was not celebrating my children on birthdays because they did not give birth but having them celebrate their mothers because it was the day their mothers gave birth. There are a lot of things that I've implemented like this. So when it comes to fathers, I mean, I want to elevate uh, fathers to a point of reverence where I think they need to be. We're somewhat closer with mothers. Sure. I mean, if you, if you look at the way traditionally people celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day, you know, Father's Day, you might get a trinket. Mother's Day? We're going to go all out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just think there, there needs to be a balance in that. And I think the only ones who can do that are mothers and fathers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Who can change the dynamic of how we do things. So when I say fathers, I have as much reverence for fathers as I do mothers, and I have as much reverence for mothers as I do fathers, and I never want to separate because to me that's what these Eurocentric notions of uh, worldviews do. They're constantly separating and dividing and categorizing. And because we have to deal with these things ourselves, much of this has been uh, inside of us. Mm. But so you ask me about fathers. That, that's where I'm going to go with that because I have so many issues about this, but I'm going to stay right here with okay, it. Okay, well, I'm going I'm to I'm, so I'm, stay right there, but I'm going to ask you a follow-up to that. Because, okay. But because our context here in the continent, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's that different in the U.S., is that we still have a lot of work to bring equity to the genders in terms of treatment just on the street. Right. 
pay gap. There's some real oh realities right here so that yeah. we're dealing with. So yes. it, at times it can seem like maybe Mother's Day is the only time where women feel like they're actually yeah. getting No, because it is. Fair due. So, so it how is. do we, in a patriarchal society in particular, especially because you have really embraced this idea of this pan-African approach to mm-hmm. identity and culture and, and also and making sure that we are true to ourselves, true mm-hmm. to our ancestors, true to our roots. Where, where do we kind of draw that line? Or where are you? I, I shouldn't ask you for a broader implication, oh, I understand but just exactly. for you, you know, yeah, I how are you exactly. drawing those distinctions? I, I, these are things that I've given so much thought to. The, where we begin to divert away from the illness of what we're dealing with, the dysfunction, yeah. is to recognize things such as this. Here's a, a really simple thing. Um, black men are not white men in black skin. Conscious black men have different ways of seeing the world, of engaging the world, of dealing with the world, of dealing with gender. But what has happened is we've fallen into this trap of accepting things such terms such as patriarchy applying to anyone with a penis. But black men did not create patriarchy. Patriarchy is a white male structure that was supported historically by white women. Historically, right? So we're talking history. So if we look at this historically and we see that it was initially never part of our being, then we have to start asking questions like, well, what was the path of our ancestors? Well, how did our ancestors deal with these issues? And if they didn't have issues of gender, why do we have gender issues now? And when we start asking those kind of questions and we start reshaping our relationship to these definitions, then we start moving away from that. We really can start moving away from that because, I mean, we've had some of the greatest minds in the world have left us a legacy that all we have to do is pick up books and read, that all we have to do is look at what they've left behind. One of my elders... Um, passed away was 30 years ago. His name was John Glover Jackson. And he wrote a book called Introduction to African Civilizations. And in that, he detailed how indigenous cultures function before colonialism, right? He was, a, and, and the, the things that he put forth gave you a lot to think about, right? But we all have to survive. We all have to eat. We all have to have shelter and housing. And no matter how much I say that these things that I want for us are within reach, it's that Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing. If you are hungry, you don't care about anyone's philosophy. If you are in danger, you don't care about your intellectual growth. You care about getting food, you care about getting shelter, and you care about taking care of your family any way you can. So some of these things that I'm talking about are concepts that are accessible if we can take care of the basic needs of our people. We can't get there until the basic needs of our people are taken. Yeah, and you, you've said so so much, and you're right. It's uh, it's it's not something we could do a whole podcast series every day yeah. of the week. <laughs> Uh, for for years and not tackle it fully, but we've had so many guests who've who've echoed the same thing. It makes me think of Samba Yonga, who founded the Women's History Museum of Zambia, and she mm. chronicles that the fact of that patriarchy was never an African concept; it was imported with colonialism into the continent, and that there are matriarchal societies throughout Zambia, throughout Ethiopia, throughout Ethiopia, uh, Kenya, mm. mm-hmm. and all we have to do right. is search our history for those models to see how we were. Uh, 
Look at um, Shaka. Look at South Africa. Made, and yeah. Look at South Africa, and you look at Shaka Zulu, and you look at the Zulu Nation, and you look at. I mean, that's the 1800s, and you can see yeah. how they were functioning. Yeah. Sorry, I'm a history person. No, no, you got no, me I going. love history too. But the yeah. but it was it was the women who brought Shaka into power, and it yeah. was the women who decided when it was time for him to end his yeah. power. And that is a well known historical fact among Zulu people, right? Of course. So that matriarchy was powerful, Absolutely. but it worked in hand with the men. It, it wasn't something disparate or separate mm. or different. Mm. They didn't see themselves that way. So um, don't get me started on history. No, I'm no, so you sorry. Know, I, think I, it's just, I think it's, the, it's just the history helps us understand our current. Yes, I think because we have yes. made patriarchy our own in yeah. the continent. <laughs> yeah, Unfortunately, we have. <laughs> we have created our own brand yeah. and patriarchy that we need to now undo. Oh, yes. Um, but, and if we understood our past, I think how what an effective tool that would be yes. to dismantle those places yes. where we say and think, this is not us. This is not who we are. Exactly. This is never who we've been. Exactly. And, and that would help us to get where we need to be. So you've graced us with the stories of your growing up and your family and what gave birth to your own storytelling that you've now taken to different audiences. And I'm really curious about what the reactions are like at the different places you take your stories. Mm. You've taken your work, you know, all across the United States. You've taken it to the continent. We've mentioned some of the places, but you've also gone to Brazil and you've gone to Asia. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, does it land differently with the different audiences? And what are the reactions like in those places? Well, I, I'll start with this. When I'm home among African-American audiences, that's a whole different field. So, you know, when I'm playing to, and I'll call them my people for lack of a better term. So when I'm playing to my people, there's an, there's an ease, there's a, I, I'm... There's an understanding, and there's a we call it a vibe. The young people yeah. say vibe now, so there's there's that feeling, and I'm being fed spiritually. I'm being fed in those moments, right? So, and when I travel in a diaspora, when I'm among similar audiences, those of the diaspora, it's pretty it's pretty much the same, right? Um, when I'm the way that the stories land, I have to I have to say this, I don't tell the story's the same way to every audience. Uh, and to give you an example, why not? So I am, I'm fluent in a few different languages. So, for example, when I go to South America, uh, if I'm doing festivals or from somewhere or if I'm visiting schools, I always go a week before, especially if I've never been in the country. Okay. And when I go a week before, I'll get up early in the morning and walk the streets. I'll go hang out in little, like, coffee shops or... Um, I even go to their churches instead <laughs> in the churches. And um, I'll go to schools like universities and I'll ask, can I sit in the back of the class or I'll have lunch with students there. So I spend a week just listening. Yeah. Right. So by the time I start telling the stories or I start, even if I'm performing, if it's a performance type thing, I have some feeling for the rhythm of the cultures there. So by the time I get on stage, I'm using nuanced language that only they know yeah. from there. Or I'm, but but and I'm also shaping the stories to their lived experiences. And because I'm a historian, because at my core, I study the history of the world, right? So when I'm traveling, I include a lot of these things in there. So most of the time, I'd say, and that's the work of a griot. I, I don't want to take credit for this, but it's the work of the griot to have immersive experiences in cultures before you speak. In fact, there was a, a writer, one of my inspirations. His name was Jan Kuru. 
and he was a Caribbean writer, historian. And Jan Kuru, he wrote about the Africans coming to the Americas before Columbus. He, he wrote about this. And in the oral tradition of the culture, he said part of the culture was that when those Africans first came to the shores of the Americas, that they did not speak. Mm-hmm. They did not speak. That when they came to the shores of the Americas, their desire was to learn the language of the people who they, whose homes they were coming to. So there would be a period of time And then once they began to learn the language of the people who were there before they arrived, then they would begin sharing, but not after, not until they had learned. So I think some of those lessons, like I had learned from reading Jan Carew's work and other people, I took those and I I try to embody those things. So most of the time, my storytelling lands right where it needs to for most people. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm curious maybe what your experience was like here in Nairobi. Maybe what you picked up on or absorbed, because it feels like you absorbed things, which is kind of a beautiful. Well, Nairobi picture. is a unique place <laughs> for me because I grew up Pan Africanist, Black nationalist, um, and one of my early heroes was Jomo Kenyatta, and I think I read Facing Mount Kenya when I was like twelve, right? Wow, when I was twelve, I know you are a different kind of child. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, one of the things. When I came here, was I was like, I'm going to the land of Jomo Kenyatta. And, you know, Nguji Watongo, who, I mean, I could yeah. start naming names and stuff, yeah. but I don't want to do that. I just, but I was coming here with a more mature sense of Africa than when I first entered West Africa. So when I came here, I didn't have these expectations of what would be here, what I would find, and it's going to be Africa. And, you know, but I, my only expectation was that I would cross the path of like-minded souls. That was my only expect. That was the only thing I was looking for. And that has happened. That has happened. So uh, the way things have landed here. <laughs> okay, I'll give you one. It was a little short story. Um, I was with a, a brother who's a driver here. And, you know, he's, he's Nairobi. He's here, grew up here. He knows the corners and everything. So I told him, I said, you know, hey, look, just... Let's go hang out for a day. Take me around. Show me what you want to show me. You're from here. I didn't want to come with any agenda. His brother took me some places. (laughs) (laughs) I got to see a Nairobi. I don't think many people get to see. And there was one moment where he took me. He said, let's go eat. And we went to this kind of like market rest. No, well, okay. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It was a room with with a table in it. and. No, not much lighting, but there were a lot of men around. So we're sitting in this room, and he's speaking Kiswahili, and he's letting everyone know who I am. And uh, all these men start gathering around. They're asking questions. We're talking. And it was just organic, right? That's what I live for. I live for those moments. And many people say, you don't want to do that. It's dangerous. You have to be careful. But you have to remember, I reared my children in their early stages in Compton. And when people come to the U.S. or they come to Los Angeles, they are told, stay away from Compton. In fact, many Africans are told, stay away from black Americans, Mm. right? So when I go to a space, I don't have any fear about what I'm going to engage, what I'm going to do. Because, and this is my spiritual philosophy, I'm being guided by my ancestors. And I'm in the arms of my ancestors. And whatever experiences I'm meant to have, I will have. And in 35 years... I've been to some of the places in the world where they say, stay away, stay out. 
don't go near there. And I've got nothing but love in those places. So I, I, I'm, it's a different experience. Yeah, so when absolutely. I'm doing things, even here in Kenya, I'm having the same experiences that I have, whether I'm in Colombia, um, even if I'm in China, or if, no matter where I'm at. I'm having the same experience because at our core, we are all souls. We are physical beings having a we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. Yeah. This is a, an experience, but we're all spiritual beings. You know, it just makes me think of that um, phrase. I don't know if it's attributed to anyone, but, you know, that idea of you, you, us being our ancestors' wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. I mean, your ancestors must be tripping out all <laughs> the time because, you know, what a joy to see you live so unbounded and so free. Uh, thank you. Because I think that has been the pursuit of every generation is freedom and more freedom and then to build on the freedom of the last. And so mm-hmm. I think we owe it to them to live free. And what a beautiful thing to live free, if nothing else, of expectation, of fear that would keep us in a corner. There's a, you keep making me think of things. You're great at this. Thank you. Um, There's an old spiritual that they used to sing in church when I was growing up, because my grandmother was Christian. Um, A couple of my uncles were Muslim, and I had had a lot going on in my family. But there was a song that my grandmother brought us up in church singing, and it it said, freedom. Freedom, oh, freedom for me. Before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord to be free. Mm. So when we talk about like living free, I know everyone has a definition of freedom that is their own, right? But I think that song kind of embodies my definition of freedom. I mean, that's my prayer for my children is, you know, Yes, we want our kids to be happy, but more than that, I want my kids to be free. Mm-hmm. That's what I want them to live free. I, yes. mean, I think that's what that's what we must be. Well, on the note of your grandmother's song, you have brought your kora with yes. you today, which for those who might be a little less familiar with this instrument, we, we had a little bit of a hallelujah moment before we started recording of everyone <laughs> oohing and awing over this instrument. So tell us a little bit about your love story with the kora and how you came to play this instrument before mm. we actually hear you strum the, strum the strings. Yeah, the kora is the instrument of the griots of West Africa, the jelly. Right, griots is the French term applied. Jelly is the indigenous Bamana language, and the jelly were oral historians of their people dating back thousands of years. And the craft of the jelly is called jelia or jelia, and the kora is only one little small part of it. But they say with the kora, when you hear the singing, the people you are hearing thousands of years of history sung mm. through the kora, and. The Korah fascinated me when I first saw it because I had never seen anything like it. And I guess there are those moments where you fall in love and you know when you fall in love. And (laughs) there was that moment where I fell in love and I had to learn it. And I remember my first teacher told me, it will take you 10 years just to be able to do the basics. And I remember I said, well, I better start now. <laughs> <laughs> and was this on your first trip to Senegal? Or when, when did you first get introduced? This, that was my first trip. first trip. trip. Yes, okay. yes, yes. First Ten love. years. You guys, I was. <laughs> and the fact that it's grounded in oral history, that they were historians, you know, automatically. Yeah. It was like, oh, this was made for me. <laughs> and, you know, you talked about the application for my people elsewhere or back. All of those things started falling into place for me. Like, oh, this is my, oh, this makes it. And that happens in life, you know, those rubrics fall in place and they create the whole. So uh, 
the Quora is, is still interesting because I still am, I have a, I think it's a lifetime goal to try to master this or try to reach another level with it. But I, I have found that uh, I have learned to play a different way that is not, I can play the indigenous songs. I can do everything that I was taught. But for those who are listening to me tell my stories, they have a different need. So I had to change my technique for playing a little bit mm. to fit the needs of those who are present. There's an old Sufi saying, and it says, speak to each according to his or her ability to understand. Mm. So to me, the music of the core is a language, and I have to shift that language to whoever's in front of me. What's the need that rises to the surface most often, especially with kids? To be seen. I can't go any more basic than that. Yeah. Children are not seen enough in any society. And I think as basic as it sounds, it's the core of what's causing a lot of issues with our youth. They are not seen. And they're in not being seen, they are also not heard. And when I go into a space, I make them my priority. And I don't see them in a superficial way. I see them through the eyes of me as a child also. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, I, I don't want to put it off any longer because I'm just like so excited <laughs> to hear you play. So mm. salam and hello listeners. You're in for a treat. We're going to hear Baba the storyteller be Baba the musician and, and continue his storytelling on the beautiful chord. Does, oh. does the chord have a name? Like, do you name your instruments? My son is a musician, and every guitar has a name. Mm. So I just thought I'd ask you. You would ask me. In case we need to introduce her or him or they um, as, with a name. <laughs> yes. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. No one has ever asked me that. Where are you getting these questions that from? That one I have to give my son Silas credit, because every instrument he has has a name. Mm. Um, Booba's wife was someone who actually saved my life. I won't go into that story, but I came in broke. She took care of me, fed me. She took care of me. So my very first corner, I, I named Momina. Hmm. And Momina is her name. And so there's, uh, there's a song uh, that goes toward motherhood. And when I, she's the only one I ever sing that song to, but when I see her, I sing that song for motherhood. And yeah, so I named my core Momina after her. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we can't wait to meet Momina and to hear from her. So we're mm. going to reset the stage and hear Baba yeah. the Storyteller on the Kora. All right. Fantastic. Ambi <laughs> 
Jesus and ninja they kill Ambiats the nana There was once a young man who had come of age that when he became when he came of age there was something that he desired more than anything in the world something he wanted and it seemed to escape him it hadn't escaped his friends but that thing that he wanted that he desired more than anything in the world he wanted to be <laughs> what well, what he desired was to be in love but it seemed like no matter what he did no matter where he went no matter who he met love seemed to always escape him Ambia sina na kumbemba jali muzaninjale kelo Ambia sina na So one day this young man wakes up and he says to himself he says today I will find love Today will be the day that I will find the one I am meant to be with and nothing will get in the way of me finding my one true love So he gets up he cleans himself up he puts on his best clothes and he heads to the open air market where there are thousands of people and he knows among those thousands of people he will find someone he's sure of it he's on a mission so he gets to the market and he starts walking around looking for his one true love and he's walking <laughs> literally he's walking for hours And as he's walking and he's looking, he's saying no, no, no. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, something hits him. And this happens to all of us eventually in life. He saw her. He saw her. Way clear across the market, he saw her. And he knew when he saw her, this was the one. This was the one he is meant to spend the rest of his life with. This was the one that he was meant to have children with and grow with and be with. So he wasted no time. He ran across that market, leaping over stalls, dodging people, getting in every direction he could, trying to get closer and closer, faster, as fast as he could. And then when he got to her, he said, "Wait. Excuse me. Hold on." She stopped, she turns around. And when she turned around, she smiled at him. In that way, a lot of y'all know what I'm talking about. She smiled at him and his heart melted and he said to her, he professed his love. He said, "You are the one I am meant to spend the rest of my life with. You are so beautiful. You are the most beautiful woman that I have ever seen." And she she gave that coy smile again and then she said to him, she said, "Oh. You don't know beauty." If you think I'm beautiful, it's only because you have not seen my older sister. And she's right over there. So she points over his shoulder. The young man, he turns to see what the older sister looks like. And when he turns to look to see what the older sister looks like, he's looking in the direction she's pointing at least he thought he was. When he looks in other directions in the direction where she he thought she was pointing, but he doesn't see anyone. So he turns back around, and when he turns back around, she's gone. She's gone. He asked the people who are sitting nearby if they saw where she went and all the people they say they don't know. He describes her. And then he starts going throughout throughout the entire market explaining what she looked like, who he's looking for. He couldn't find her. 
And it wasn't until on his walk home that evening, late that evening, after spending hours looking for her, it wasn't until his walk back home that he realized the error of his ways, that he realized his great mistake. First of all, Baba, that was beautiful. Thank thank you you for gracing us with that song. First time we've had live music in 2023. Just Uh just beautiful. Thank you. I won't even try and touch it. Just admire (laughs) it from a distance. But before I ask you the next question, I want to ask you a little bit about the instrument itself. Mm -hmm. Walk us through kind of the body of the instrument. It's it's really a basic instrument because the, the resonator, that big, round part is it's a calabas mm. it's a calabas and it's covered with cow skin okay and it resonates because of the vibrations of the membranes right yeah. and the sound bounces around inside of the gourd of the calabas and so you got those two things and then the wood the handles i hold it with are made of wood the neck of the instrument is made of wood and those leather rings that you see on the wood mm-hmm. hold the strings And the same science that goes into building a suspension bridge is the same science that goes into constructing this instrument. So basically black people just just made the world. (laughs) Just made the world. Music, bridges, architecture. I've also heard... um, the banjo, basically, the oh, modern-day banjo is based it on is the It is so choir. ironic yeah. that you mentioned that because I had that come up in school today. Okay. A child, it was a young child, said, that looks like a banjo. And it gave me an opportunity to talk about the history because the banjo was something that was created by my African-American ancestors during slavery. That's right. And one of the first references to that was um, Thomas Jefferson. In his, in his uh, memoirs, in his journal, he wrote, and I think it was about 1824 or so, that the slaves were playing this instrument that he found fascinating called a banjar, but he spelled it B-A-N-J-A-R. And that instrument is a connection to our roots to Africa because the banjar is not only based on this, but there are other instruments that are closely related to how it's played, even what it looks like. There's a, an instrument called an ngoni, Ngoni. The Ngoni is the ancestor of the banjo. But yeah, it it these instruments all relate to that part of history for yeah, us. Absolutely. Yeah. I had the great joy of going to the Museum of African American Music in Nashville, Tennessee. Have yes. you had a chance to go to that yet? No, I have not. It but. is extraordinary and they do such a powerful job of basically tracing all the instruments from West Africa 
that traveled across through the enslaved persons and their history into the U.S., yeah. which of course comes through now the Negro spirituals, which then exactly. bursts the blues, which then yeah. gives us rock and roll, which then gives us jazz, which then gives us hip hop, which then gives us everything, like yes. the, all of the music and culture that really the U.S. has exported to the rest of the world starts right here. From pain, beauty can be born. Absolutely, beauty from ashes. Exactly. So let's talk about your book, The Road of Ash and Dust, yes. speaking of beauty from ashes. Tell us how the griot now be- takes the oral history and the oral tradition to the written page and, and how that book came to be. Well, one of the things, I think, when you begin to understand who you really are, right, when you when you look at yourself and you see clearly the, who's standing in front of you, you, there are things that you may have wanted to deny about yourself that you have to admit, right? So having come through enslavement and the trauma of enslavement, one of the things that I was forced to realize was that there are aspects of me that are very Western, right? That not necessarily things that I wanted to put in myself, but social conditioning, what psychologists call classical conditioning, things like this, right? So I had to admit that to myself, right? Yes, I am African. Paul Robeson, one of my heroes, he said, Mm -hmm. I am African. And he had this uh, speech that he wrote about it. And it helped me to understand that, yes, I'm a whole being and I am representative of my experiences. And although oral culture is profoundly important to me, literacy, written, is also because I was born in the West. I was nurtured in the West. Um, So I had to put both aspects of those pieces of myself together. And, uh, you know, we were talking about Gil Scott, uh, Mm -hmm. but Gil Scott has this poem called Pieces of a Man, right? So those types of things help me bring all these together. So when we're talking about writing, right, I've always been a writer, right? Um, Those of us who are um, immersed in oral culture and traditions, we make some of the best writers. Mm -hmm. If you look at the writers on the African continent who have translated our culture, our histories to the written word, incredible, phenomenal writers. Uh, Anyone can just research and see that, right? So that's that's what what led me to that. Yeah, so when someone picks up your book, what are they going to find between the pages? Me. Who are you? A father. <laughs> We're back at the beginning. No, I, I understand. What they're, what, uh, here's what I hope. What I hope is when someone reads that, they'll read that there is a flawed being on a journey to self-discovery and that somehow that will resonate with them. I appreciate that. I appreciate the humility in that statement. Mm. And and the offering it is, the, the invitation it is for all of us to, Thank to you. reflect a bit too. So we always like to ask our guests on the show two questions. We ask every single I've, I've guest. I've heard of these infamous questions <laughs> that I have no idea what's about, I'm about to get hit with. they're famous and infamous. But the first <laughs> one, Baba, what is your favorite drink? Water. Oh, my. How are you the first person to say Water. <laughs> Am I really? Yes, you are the first person to say water. I don't, Sasha and Amin are here in the background. I don't even think they said water. Yeah, they said like ginger ale, stony, something I, like that, tea. Yeah, I, I, I don't even hesitate to answer that. Water yeah. of the earth. You are just a man of the earth. 
Okay, okay, that's fine. We're, we're like 60% water, so we can allow it. A bit boring, unlike the rest of you, but we'll allow, we'll allow. It's okay. Water, water is life. Okay. Water is life. And, you know, you have brought us such, just, that you've brought us so much today. I'm going to tell on myself real quick. I'm oh, going to no. tell on myself. Okay. And I don't say this with any sense of pride. It's just where I've reached at this point in my life. I have never had a sip of alcohol my entire life. I've never, Cheers I've never, the worst thing I've ever put in my body, and this isn't like bragging or anything, has been like sugars, sodas, and, you know, Coca-Cola. Have you had beautiful uh, delicious no, coffee before? No, I love the smell of coffee, yeah. but I've never consumed coffee. Well, my mother-in-law is here. She also loves the smell of coffee, but does not drink it. Oh. Well, she loves the smell. Kind, yeah, kindred yeah. spirits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the Ethiopian in me is... Having a little itch behind my neck. No, I, I, I love the smell of tobacco, but I don't smoke. Yeah, right? okay. So maybe your olfactory senses are the ones they feed that, me. That they right. feed you. <laughs> they, they are your taste. Okay. Um, and you know, we we thank you so much for being here and bringing us so much. You brought us mm. warmth. You brought us connection. You brought us joy. And so, we ask every guest before we let them go, what is bringing you joy today? Right now, this moment. I, I try to immerse myself in every moment, and I just, right now, this moment. Well, the feeling is definitely mutual. What, what a beautiful thing, shared joy. Thank you. Shared joy. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, salam and hello, listeners. I, I just hope you are delighting in this conversation as much as I am. We will put all the ways that you can find Baba the Storyteller, Baba the Griot, in the mm. show notes where you can continue to engage with his work and find his book and continue to follow the important stories that he is telling. We would love to hear from you and your stories. So you can find us on all the socials at Salam and Hello. That's Salam with an E. I know some of you like to spell Salam with an A, but this is an E show, E for Ethiopia. At Salam and Hello on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, we always appreciate a rating and a review. It really helps our show. And until we meet again, peace and be well. Asante Sana. Asante Sana. How beautiful. Oh my goodness.